This is going to take a while. So, um, <laughs> yeah, that's what you all, I'm sure, wanted to hear. Okay, so um, uh, recapping where what's been happening. So, we've had retreat last week. Uh, hands up if you were there. Yeah, that's great. Okay, so um, a retreat, I hope, was a great time, but it interrupted what we were doing. But it was a very welcome and awesome interruption. Um, what we were doing before retreat was we were covering uh, this series about the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, uh, a lot of us, particularly a lot of um, you know, Christians who are facing maybe hard times as, you know, in their faith, they might look at the God of the Old Testament and think, who is this guy? He's very different to Jesus. Uh, he's judging people and he's smiting people and he's you know, doing all this stuff. And so it can be quite a you know, very... Um, challenging uh, thing to read the Old Testament, to look at the New Testament, and to try to reconcile God and your view of God um, in the two things. And so what we wanted to do was we wanted to have a look at God in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, see if this is a consistent picture of God, or if this is just a uh, you know clash of worlds, and is the Old Testament even worth looking at, all that kind of stuff. So the first week, we covered um, the God's commands. And we had a look at God's commands in the Old Testament, um, uh, beginning at the very beginning, like literally the very first commands, which was eat of every tree except for the tree of knowledge, good and evil. And then we looked at the Ten Commandments and we looked at um, uh, the way that Jesus then uh, took those commandments and and many other commandments that were in the Old Testament and how he uh, showed them for what they really are and how he himself followed through with every command uh, by being obedient to the point of death on a cross, and that through Jesus' obedience and through Jesus' righteousness, uh, we have uh, the opportunity, the ability to obtain that righteousness, but also to, um, to, to live out an obedient life because we're empowered by Jesus' spirit. Um, and so we looked essentially at how that you know, consequence, uh, the commands are all about um, uh, kind of following through God's way and surrendering our way. Then the second week, uh, which was, I think, just before the retreat, we talked about um, God's judgment. It was part one. This is part two today. So part one, what we covered was uh, we looked at three main stories of God judging, and they were all in the Old Testament. The first was the very first judgment. So when Adam and Eve fell, um, how they got judged, um, uh, you know, and if you want to look that up, Genesis 3. But essentially what we learned from that was that judgments of God can be prescriptive or consequential. In other words, God can prescribe a judgment. God can say, this is the nature of what you did and here is your judgment. But also the fact that it can kind of be a consequence. Like if I do this, then the natural consequence inbuilt in the universe and the way that God kind of built this world and, and the moral law is that, you know, this consequence, this consequence will happen. Um, And essentially the consequence being that if you reject God, who is the author of life and goodness, you should kind of expect badness and death to come out of it, right? At some point, uh, some kind of... So that was the very first thing we looked at. Then we looked at the flood and we looked at how God's judgment was motivated um, by grief, a deep, deep grief at humans' evil, uh, humanity's evil, and how he was just so grieved by it that he wanted... A clean slate, but out of his goodness, he chose Noah um, and his family um, to re-begin. And at the end of that story, God said that He would never ever do that thing again, um, uh, because He is good. Um, and then we looked at how, also in that story, God's. Can you hear me, Daniel? Yeah, it's broken. I'll just not touch it. Um, uh, we also learned in that story how. Um, God's uh, judgment in that story was essentially he hid his face um, and we get the undoing of creation um, and how when God withdraws his presence, withdraws his face, um, the world devolves back into chaos and, and darkness and watery, watery wasteland that it was at the very beginning. Um, and so the idea is that, again, you're cut off from the source of life and goodness and order, um, and the result is chaos. So, uh, and then the last story we looked at was the Exodus and the Ten Judgments Against Egypt. And what we learned from those stories were a few things. First was that um, 
uh, God is committed to again bringing evil to judgment, um, but also that God's judgment of evil will always reveal it for what it is. All the commandments, uh, all the all the judgments that God brought, all the plagues that God brought about against Egypt revealed a source of their idolatry, a source of their evil. Uh, things like He struck the sun to darkness, and um, you know that against the god Ra, the the Egyptian god of Ra, who's the like main god of the sun. Um, but also things like the Nile, the very first plague, the Nile being turned to blood. Where a few decades earlier, um, that's exactly where they were throwing dead children, uh, baby Hebrews, to die. So God reveals this source, this life, life source of theirs, as actually a source of death, um, and so He reveals it for what it is. So God's judgment um, against evil to reveal the evil, but also to bring liberation. Um, and obviously, the Israelites, if you were to ask any of the Israelites as they were watching God's judgment, they would have been very, very happy and very, very glad because it meant that they were going to be set free or that was the whole intention and purpose of God's judgments. So God's judgment for those who love him and those who are righteous in his eyes, God's judgments are actually a good thing. They are something that we want. They're not something that we want to hide from. Um, and uh, yeah, but also what we learn through all of these stories, whether it be Adam and Eve uh, in the garden and then he sacrifices for them um, and, and kind of clothes them and, and then kicks them out of Eden so that they won't continue their destructive path, or whether it be the flood and choosing Noah and then creating this new world for, for um, him and his uh, family, or um, the Israelites and the Passover lamb, God always provides a way out. God always wants to uh, provide a way out, uh, a source of redemption um, uh, away from his judgment. So that's what we did. A very long, long uh, summary. How you guys going? Are you okay? All right. So today we're going to look at one more example from the Old Testament and we're going to see what then that looks like, what everything we're going to talk about looks like in the New Testament. You tell me at the end whether or not you think it's consistent or not. Okay. Before we do that, I just want to remind you about the key verse uh, that frames this whole talk, this whole series. And that is uh, from Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And that is, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to festival or, or a new moon or a Sabbath. In other words, don't let anyone kind of talk to you about the Old Testament and the way of the Old Testament. Um, like, don't let anyone kind of judge you for doing that or whatever else. Because Paul says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, everything we see in the Old Testament has its fulfillment and embodiment in uh, the person of Jesus. So with all of that in mind, let's have a look at uh, another big source of God's judgment in the Old Testament. Probably other than the Exodus is probably the big source of God's judgment. And that is the exile of Israel. How many of you guys are familiar with what that means? The exile of Israel. Okay. The exile of Israel, in a nutshell, and as we'll, we'll go on to understand, the exile of Israel was a punishment, a judgment of God, that Israel did not keep the covenant that they made with God. And what went on to happen was he judged them uh, by removing them from the land that he gave them. Um, and so we're going uh, to read the process of all of that happening. So pull out your Bibles and check out Exodus chapter 34. We're going to read verses 6 and 7. It's uh, really important to read along with me, because uh, otherwise you may be lost. Okay, Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. So the Lord passed before him, the uh, Lord passed before Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Okay, so we're opening with this passage because what has just happened is God has given them the law, the Ten Commandments. He's just given Moses and the people the law. And as he is giving them the law and literally just fresh from their uh, exodus from Egypt, you know what the people are doing? They're down at the bottom of the mountain where Moses is getting the, the law from God and they are making an idol. 
You know what the very first commandment is? Essentially, have no other gods except for God. So from the get-go, before they even have an opportunity to fail, they fail. And so what this story is following is Moses goes up a second. He destroys the tablets. He's angry. He's upset. And he, he, he shouts at Israel. And God is very upset. And so Moses goes up the mountain and God gives him two fresh new tablets with the Ten Commandments, a re- redo because Moses destroyed the last ones. And this is the ver- these are the passages that come right after that. So God here declares that he, this is his, his title. You, know, you remember Game of Thrones, how every time uh, Daenerys would be introduced, they'd be like the mother of dragons, the, the whatever, all of this stuff that they would say about her. This is God's version of that. The Lord, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. That sounds great, right? We read all of that and we say, yeah, that's the God I know. That's Jesus. And then all of a sudden we get, uh, but uh, um, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. We're like, whoa, whoa, okay, maybe, maybe the fathers, but the children, the children's children, what's going on here? This is, this is really important because this is a, a, a phrase and a statement that goes on to be literally echoed like tens of times uh, in the Old Testament. Every time you have a prophet appealing to God or another person appealing to God, whether it be Jonah or any of the other prophets or other, other characters of the Bible, they will say this. They will say, the Lord God, who is slow to anger and quick to mercy, who is slow to judgment, um, but will you know, uh, bless those who love him and will visit the iniquity on the children and all this kind of stuff. This is a repeated phrase. And this is the title. This is one of the ways that God chooses to reveal himself to the people. So what's it, what's it saying? It's saying a few things. Uh, the first is obviously that God is merciful, that, uh, and it's demonstrated by the very actions that, that have just taken place, um, that he's compassionate, he's willing to forgive, um, that he relents from punishing, that he gives undeserved favor, that he wants affection, loyalty, intimacy, and commitment from those who he himself loves, um, and that he himself gives that to them. He gives them uh, affection, intimacy, and his loyalty and commitment, um, that he is always true and always steadfast. But you see, for God to be all of those things, uh, you cannot then go about and expect God to not judge evil, right? Does, do, you, do you agree with me when I say that? If you trust in a God who is all of this stuff, who is good, who is merciful, who's gra- gracious, loving, uh, then how could a God like that allow evil to unfold and, and without consequences, without uh, punishment? So that's why he goes on to say, but he will by no means clear the guilty, but he'll visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. But he also, um, his, his inclination and his desire is to, to visit blessing and, um, uh, and forgiveness and love and faithfulness to the thousandth generation. We tend to focus a lot on the third and fourth and forget the thousandth. So we're reading this because what happens next over the course of the story of Moses and then over the course of literally 800 years, um, literally 800 years from the formation of Israel uh, to the the exile of Israel is time and time and time. Literally, the, the whole story of the Old Testament is just failure after failure of Israel. And it takes 800 years for God, literally a, a thousand genera- more than a thousand generations, takes this time for God to finally say, enough's enough. Enough's enough. And uh, the way it comes about is uh, at this point in Israel's history, the north and the, the south, the, the Israel has had a civil war and they're, they're divided. Um, uh, the, 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 the kingdoms of Israel, so not Judah or Benjamin, the kingdoms of Israel have already been exiled. And now Jerusalem is facing a, 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 a threat, that of Babylon, who has just risen. And um, uh, there is a prophet called Jeremiah. And so we're going to read Jeremiah chapter 25 if you want to pull it up. There's a prophet called Jeremiah. 
And he, along with many other prophets uh, throughout the hundreds of years, have been witnessing Israel's repeated uh, failure, repeated um, breaking of God's covenant. And remember, covenant, which we, we've talked about before, a covenant is a, 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 an agreement, a sacred agreement between two parties, in this case, God and Israel, where you uphold your end of the bargain, and for Israel that was to follow him, to obey him, to put God first in everything, then God will follow his end of the bargain, which was to make them his people, that he would be their God, he would exalt them um, in all the nations, and that they would be a blessing to all the other nations around them, and that there would be peace and prosperity and all this good stuff. But Israel constantly, constantly put other gods before him, constantly uh, rejected uh, helping those, the widow, the orphan, the, uh, the, the, the poor, um, and they constantly were greedy and corrupt and just greed and evil uh, consumed their society to the point where uh, we get this, Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 1 to 16. So this is what Jeremiah says. The word came to Jeremiah, the prophet, concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So Jeremiah, the prophet, said to all the people of Judah and to all those living in Jerusalem for 23 years, from the 13th, uh, 30th year of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, until this very day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. And though the Lord has sent all his servants, the prophets, to you again and again, you have not listened or paid any attention. <clears throat> they said, turn now, each of you, from your evil ways and your evil practices, and you can stay in the land that the Lord gave to you and your ancestors forever and ever. Do not follow other gods and to serve them and worship them. Do not arouse my anger with what your hands have made. Then I will not harm you. This call to action from God through his prophets, like turn back, stop doing what you're doing. Verse seven, but you did not listen to me, declares the Lord. And you have aroused my anger with what your hands have made. And you have brought harm to yourselves. Do you see how God phrases it here? That through all this time, you have accumulated guilt and that guilt is now the thing that will be your judgment. Um, uh, and uh, verse 8, Therefore the Lord Almighty says, Because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north, and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, uh, declares the Lord, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. I will banish them from the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole country will be, become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when those 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord, and will make it desolate forever. I will bring on that land all the things I have spoken against it, all that are written in this book and prophesied by Jeremiah against all the nations. They themselves will be enslaved by many nations and great kings. I will repay them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. So you have this image where God is saying, that's it. Time's up. Enough is enough. You've had your warnings through Jeremiah and through all these other people. And over the past 800 years, you've just been accumulating guilt for yourselves. And that guilt will now be the thing that condemns you. That guilt will now be the, the action and the modus of your destruction and your doom. But God also says that, don't worry, I see the nations as well. And I see Babylon and they won't go unpunished for what they're going to do to you as well. Now, there's two ways to see that. One way is like, what the heck? This bipolar God, what's he doing? Isn't, aren't they, you know, the ones who are going to go and, you know, judge it? Like, it's, it's him that's doing it, right? But on the other hand, what you see is that God here is being completely impartial. That you have heaped on guilt for yourself, you will reap the, 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 the kind of rewards of that guilt. But these people, they also are heaping guilt on themselves by the actions that they're doing. They will all, don't worry, I'm consistent. And you see, beforehand, Israel might have been tempted to think the same way about themselves. They might have been tempted to say, we're God's chosen people. Well, he's not going to hurt us. Like, we just got to say sorry every now and again and come back to him. He'll, he'll forgive. It's fine. God's saying, like, no, I'm not going to let you off the hook, just like I'm not going to let any other nation off the hook. Any evil before me will come to justice. And yet you see 800 years of patience, 
800 years of patience. There's another passage that I haven't put in here, but it's in Genesis, uh, I think it's chapter 12, where God uh, makes the covenant with Abraham. And uh, he says to Abraham, he says, your descendants will be foreigners in a foreign land. They'll be slaves um, of these people talking about Egypt. And he says, uh, but then I will liberate them and then I'll, I will take them and they will uh, take ownership of this land, the land of the you know, Hittites, Perizzites, you know, all that list of the different ites. And then he says, but not yet because their guilt or their, their sin or their evil has not yet come to, to its fulfillment. God is waiting. God is looking and he is waiting to see those who would follow and obey him. But those who continuously, time and time again, continuously rebel, continuously turn away, continuously you know, uh, reject him, time, you will not have forever. Time will run out for you. And God is just waiting. He is the God who who wants to bless to a thousand generations, but when the time comes, your time is up, he will judge, he will bring judgment to even the third and fourth generation because he will not let evil escape his sight and he will not let it go unpunished because it is his world and it is, his, uh, it is, it is him that, that still binds this world and everything that we have in it. So he has absolutely every right, but he waits. And so he says this in verse 27. Um, he says this uh, through Jeremiah again in verse 27 of the same chapter. Uh, oh, sorry. No, no, no. Wait, go back. Verse 15. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. This is a really important image. This is an image that will uh, continue to echo throughout the whole story of the Bible, as we will see. And that's the image of this, this cup of wrath of God, this, this, this cup of wine that is the wrath of God. Uh, and wrath here being judgment, right? So this cup of judgment. This image tells us a few things. One thing it tells us is that uh, evil is intoxicating. Evil is intoxicating because you see, God won't put his judgment on you unless, uh, you know, unless you're doing evil in his eyes, right? Um, uh, evil is intoxicating. You see, the nations don't have to be convinced to drink from this cup. People don't have to be convinced to drink from this cup. Uh, there's uh, Psalm chapter 75 verse 8 says this, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it drown to the, down to the dregs. In other words, people, people are inclined to do evil. People, when they see an opportunity to rebel against God and to do evil, they will grab that cup and they will drink all of it down to the dregs. And you know the consequence of that? drunkenness and destruction, right? So God here is saying to Jeremiah, here is their cup. Here it is. Go take it to all the people that have been drinking from it and make them drink to the end, to the fill, so that they will experience the full drunkenness and the full judgment that will come on them as a result. Does that, do you get in that image? Yeah. So the idea here is that, um, again, it's this idea of God uh, um, saying to us and saying to humanity, your guilt, all the evil and all the things that you, you've done that, that makes you guilty, that will be heaped upon you, that, that will be turned around and your evil will become the source of your downfall. Right? And you know what? The world does work that way. <laughs> Think about it. Think about, uh, I mean, even Harvey Weinstein in the last, you know, the last uh, few weeks. Like th the world works like this. The, the, the order of the world still has elements of, of God's control in it. And we are supposed to be people who bring more and more of God's influence into this world. But the world does work like this, where evil and truth uh, truth will have its day, evil will be punished, uh, consequences um, exist for your actions. Yeah? Um, and in verse 27, God says, Then tell them, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, Drink, get drunk and vomit, and fall to rise no more, because the sword I will send among you. In other words, this is your, the completion of, of, of your guilt and, and, and you uh, taking it all, all down. Now, We'll read 
what ends up happening when the fall comes. So Jeremiah, not only did he prophesy about the fall before it even happened, he actually was in the fall, like he actually witnessed it himself. So Jeremiah chapter 32 uh, says this, check it out, verse 17. I prayed to the Lord saying, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of the fathers to their children after them. Recognize that that verse? Yeah, great. Okay. Um, O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. You have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and to this day in Israel and among all mankind and have made a name for yourself as at this day. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and outstretched arm and with great terror. And you gave them this land which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they entered and took possession of it, but they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this disaster come upon them. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it. And because of sword and famine and pestilence in the city uh, is given into the hands of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass. And behold, you see it. This is the guy, the guy who prophesied, but this is also the guy who lives in Judah. This is, this, this is a citizen watching the world around him crash and fall. And he's looking at God and all that's coming out of him is really praise and worship. Why? It's because he's choosing to see the scenario, not in isolation, He doesn't choose just to look at the horror around him and say, God, what are you doing? How dare you? No, he's choosing to see the picture in the full context of the reality of the situation, which is that God is bringing about um, his, his promise, which is essentially to judge. So many of us turn around and when we think of God's promises, we think about all these happy, you know, like, you know, God will hug me and stuff. But the reality is that there are also promises of God that says that evil will not, will not have the final word, that evil will come to, 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 to be judged. And so Jer- Jeremiah here, even though it hurts him, even though he's in the midst of all of this, uh, he looks to God and he says, um, this is the work of your hand and this is mighty and awesome because it's what you promised to do. Uh, And then the Lord answers him in verse 26. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and he says in verse 27, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm giving this city into the hands of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. The Chaldeans who are fighting against the city shall come and set this city on fire and burn it with the houses uh, on whose roofs Offerings have been made to Baal and drink offerings have been poured out to other gods to provoke me to anger. Um, For the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. The children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. This city has aroused my anger and wrath from the day it was built to this day, so that I will remove it from my sight because of all the evil the children of Israel and the children of Judah um, have done. Uh, and I'm going to skip a little bit. Verse 33, uh, um, they have turned to me their back and not their face. So God here is now saying, you know, by saying that, he's essentially saying, I, I tried to reason with them. I tried to communicate, but they turned their back to me instead of like facing me and, and kind of hashing it out with me. Um, and though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. They set up their abominations in the house that's called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal in the valley of Sun Hinnom. What uh, just a bit of context for you. So what he's now referring to is child sacrifice. Um, uh, and it says to offer up their sons and their daughters to Molech. Though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. So in other words, God is making accusation after accusation after accusation, recounting sin after sin. And then he says this in verse 36. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the city of which you say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and great indignation. And what will he do? 
He's going to wipe them out. He's going to destroy it. No, I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make them... Uh, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this great disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Whoa, what an about face. Like... God is God's inclination is to do good, is to see good. He created a good world. He created you and I for the good, pleasing purposes that he wanted for us and that he wants to restore us back into. When we do evil, it must be brought back down because otherwise the cycle continues until we devour ourselves. But out of the ashes, God promises that there will be there will be new life and that he will return um, back to his people, return back to these and and return back to his inclination to do good. So um, this so this this story, this this whole thing is uh, summarized really well in uh, Lamentations chapter three. Um, the book of Lamentations is written by the exiles of Israel. So they're exiled. And they are reflecting on the horror and the trauma that they've witnessed. They're reflecting on their loved ones who were put to death and raped and, and starved to death. They're reflecting on the fact that they're now strangers in a strange land. Imagine being literally abducted um, from everyone and everything you know and transported to somewhere completely different to be a slave. They're reflecting on this whole story and this is what the author of Lamentation says uh, in chapter 3. And I'm just going to go from verse... Uh, let's go from verse uh, 13. Uh, he's talking about God. He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became the laughing stock of all my people. They mock me in song all day long. He's filled me with bitter herbs and given me gall to drink. He's broken my teeth with gravel. He's trampled me in the dust. I've been deprived of peace. I've forgotten what prosperity is. So I say my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I will remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. This, this beautiful poem that comes smack bang in the, in the middle of, of the book of Lamentations, which is just literally like anguish and crying out to God and, and talking to him about suffering. First of all, it exists. This book exists. You are allowed to, to protest. You are allowed to cry out to God. You're allowed to wrestle with him about suffering and distress and the nature of his judgment, the nature of his, his justice. You're allowed. It's, it's given a whole book of the Bible. And not only that, many, many other chapters in the book of Psalm and, and, and so on. And yet, smack bang in the middle of this book, the author says, but... This I call to mind because of the Lord's great love, we weren't consumed for his compassions never fail. They knew every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The very source of his distress, his anguish, his suffering is actually also the source of his hope. And that can only come when you know who God is. It can only come when you know that he is the God who will give and bless to the thousandth generation, but will also put evil to the, to the, to the ultimate final conclusion of it. You're, if you can trust God to judge evil, how much more can you trust God to bring about good and, and blessing in your life? That is what the author is saying here. He is saying, because of the Lord's great love, we weren't destroyed. Yes, this happened, but it's because this happened that I can trust for a new day that he can still be my portion, that he can still be the one that I depend on and trust in. 
even though I'm broken and mangled. It's because I'm broken and mangled that I know that if he was faithful enough to, to judge and to, to bring about the end of, of our wickedness and, and all the guilt that we were accumulating on ourselves, I can also judge that his desire and his inclination to bring blessing and, and goodness back will also come to pass. It's challenging. I don't think many of us could do that. I don't think if you felt judged by God, and many people do feel judged by God. It's one of the major things that whenever you talk to a, a person who doesn't believe in God or, or who maybe thinks that Christianity is like the source of all evil in the world, they say, your God, how dare he judge? How dare he judge? I'm good and I do this, this and this. And then when suffering hits their life or maybe a Christian who thinks that God is supposed to be good all the time and, and suffering or maybe like a certain judgment for a certain thing and they, they rebel and they say, well, you know what? I reject this God. I reject this notion of God. And yet we have to be honest that we aren't perfect, that none of us sitting here and none of us throughout the history of all of humanity, except for one, can ever sit blamelessly in front of God and ever say that we don't deserve a, a, a bad thing. Not to say that all bad things that happen in our life are a judgment from God. I don't believe that. But, but the idea is that if you think that God is judging you and that's unfair... Well, first of all, it's not unfair. Secondly of all, a God who wouldn't judge evil is not a God that I would want to, to believe in. And thirdly of all, if you know the God of this Bible in the Old Testament and the New Testament, who is the same yesterday, today and tomorrow, if you know this God, if you see him bring about judgment, how much more will he bring about the blessing and the goodness and the love and the provision that he wants to provide? Yeah? All it requires all it requires is to trust him, to surrender to him. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Uh, we're going to go to the New Testament now. Uh, let's have a look at Matthew chapter 26. So this, the whole story of Jesus is about the Son of God, the, the fully human one, but also God made flesh. God who empties himself of everything to, and makes himself just like you and me. He comes down, and the whole claim of the Bible is that he would lower himself to such a position so that he could invite us back in. That this guilt that we've been accumulating on ourselves from the beginning of creation all the way till now, that this guilt would not be the final word in our lives. And uh, I think one of the most beautiful and profound ways that we see this is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I feel like I always bring up this passage. But uh, Matthew chapter 26, verses 39 to 44. Uh, Jesus went a little further beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. What's the cup? Now you know. The cup is God's wrath. It's God's judgment. Jesus is sitting in this garden, literally a few hours away from his execution. And he knows what's coming. He knows that God's judgment, all of it, past, present, future, for every single human being who will ever live and who ever has lived, all of it is going to be heaped on him. The cup is in front of him. And you know what he, he doesn't want? He doesn't want to drink from it. Because no one in their right mind, no one who's like him, who is sinless, who is guiltless, who has never done anything wrong in their whole entire life, no one who is like that, no one who is guiltless, would want to be thought of as guilty and let alone suffer the consequences of someone who is guilty. Jesus knows exactly what the wrath of God, what the judgment of God is. He knows exactly what evil does. And it's because of that he's not like the nations that are hungrily, greedily drinking up this cup and getting drunk off of it. He's the opposite. He's trying to remain sober. It's actually part of the reason, I think, that he keeps telling his disciples, be sober, be vigilant, like, like stay awake, be with me here. Don't like fall asleep. He is sober, he is vigilant, and he does not want to drink from this cup. And yet, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. You know why? Because it is exactly for this person, purpose that he came. It's exactly because of what he's about to do on the cross and drink from this cup that we deserve and not him. That's the only way that he can provide a source of life for us. 
And so, Matthew chapter 27, one chapter later, verses uh, 45 to 46. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma shabakteni, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you want to know what it looks like to drink from the cup of uh, suffering? It looks like this. It looks like, and you tell me if you can recognize the language here. It looks like the sun being darkened and the world uh, going to a, a place of chaos and, 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 uh, and kind of bareness and isolation. It, go, it looks like um, complete disparateness and disconnection from the source of life. Um, it looks like um, someone who's in agony, in pain, who's suffering, who's dying. Like the echoes of all, all that's come before. And then in verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks were split. For the very first time, God's judgment didn't reset a cycle of pain and suffering and reset a cycle of uh, ongoing you know, suffering and shortcomings and all this kind of stuff. For the first time, the, the Holy of Holies is split. For the first time, God's presence, um, uh, well, God's, God's judgment actually deals with things and actually breaks things for once and once and for all um as paul would put it in romans chapter 5 verse 9 to 10 uh, we have been justified by his blood um uh well actually i will read that in a second i think it's in second uh, corinthians i didn't put it in my notes but i think it's in second corinthians it says that um and i'll paraphrase that uh, jesus or perfection became sin so that the sinner can be, be made perfect um what happened on the cross once and for all was the sinless Son of God, the perfect one, um, took on all the sins, separated from God the Father, um, knew what it was to, to, to experience God's judgment in its full and rawest form, um, and uh, um, all so that we could be in Him, uh, have um, that perfection that He was, that He is. Um, and in Romans 5, 9 to 10, Since we have now been justified by His blood... How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if we were, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Echoing the words of lamentations, echoing the words of uh, God uh, to Jeremiah, which is that if he is faithful to judge even his own son and, and put him to death on the cross for our sake and reconcile uh, us to him for our, for our sake, through his own personal cost, then how much more will he be willing to save us completely? Right? This is good news, but it came at a terrible, terrible, terrible cost. That's what it looks like for God to deal with evil. And you see, he didn't have to deal with it that way. He did not have to die himself. He did not have to sacrifice anything himself. And yet, it's because of his inclination to give, generation, uh, to, to give blessing to the thousandth gen generation, and because he's so slow to anger and quick to mercy, that, that's exactly what he did. Exactly what he wanted to do. Um, but then the question becomes, because we still look around, we still see evil everywhere. So the question becomes, what happens for the future? Before we get into that, how are you guys going? Do you want to, like, let's pause for two minutes, open this up for... Any questions, any queries, any things that, you know, don't click or that you wanted to clarify or that I might have said that you disagree with? Who's asleep? All right. Sorry, bro. You may sleep. It's okay. All right. Anything anyone wants to say? All right. Well, let's move on then. Oh, you want to say something? Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, okay. So the question becomes, we see the world around us. We see, we have this promise from God that evil uh, has been dealt with on, a, on the cross. Um, and yet evil hasn't been dealt with on the cross because we still see it around us. Um, and as Paul goes on to talk about, we have this nature of sin, this nature of evil inside of us. And it's constantly at war. Even when we're Christians, it's constantly at war. Even when we have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus inside of us, we still have this tension, this friction, this desire to do evil. So what is going on here? Well, that's because at the end of it all, 
God is still, just like he did with Israel for 800 years, he's still patiently waiting. He is allowing people to make their final choices and final decisions. He's patiently waiting before once and for all evil will be completely wiped out. And we read in the book of Revelation, we read about what that looks like. And and many people look at this book and are like, what the heck? And I am one of them. But uh, one of the best ways to look at it is the culmination of the culmination of the story of the Bible so far. And uh, I hope you will see that with me. Let's check out Revelation chapter 14. Let's have a look at verses 14 to 20. Okay. I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Can anyone guess who this guy is? Huh? No. He's on a, he's on a cloud. He's like a son of man. Jesus. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Um, Daniel chapter 7, that's what John uh, here is alluding to. Uh, Verse 15, Then another angel came out of the temple uh, and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. What the heck are we talking about? We are talking about Jesus enthroned, Jesus glorified, Um, uh, uh, pictured as he is in Daniel chapter 7 the the son of man uh, elevated to the cloud uh, the clouds and he is now harvesting as Jesus himself talked about harvesting those who belong to him anyone who calls himself a follower of Jesus who's who's accepted his sacrifice on the cross who's become a new creation through him they're being harvested And then we read this in verse 17. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had the the, uh, charge of the fire that came from the altar called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. So this other angel dude, he said, take your sharp sickle and gather the cluster of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are right. All right, we've been talking about the wine of God's wrath. So what are these grapes? These grapes are the ripe evil that humanity has produced. Does that make sense? So there are the, 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 the harvest of those who belong to God, who have given everything over to him, who follow Jesus. They're harvested. And then all the evil of humanity, it's, it's now ripe as well. It's come to its full ripeness. And these are, these are the grapes. And so... Time to harvest them too. So the angel in verse 19 swung his sickle on earth, gathered its grapes and threw them into the great wine press of God's wrath. The wine of God's wrath. This is, this is where that gets developed. This is, we're sneaking behind the factory doors and we're seeing where it's, it's made. They were trampled in the wine press outside the city and blood flowed out of the, of, of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. The imagery here is this, that at the end of all things, at the culmination of history, there are going to be two harvests. And Jesus talks about this as well. There are two harvests. One is those who belong to Jesus. And the other are those who have been accumulating their guilt, making their grapes of of wrath, uh, John Steinbeck, grapes of wrath uh, ripe for the harvest so that out of that, that harvest and out of that wine press, the final batch of God's wrath, wine, wrath, will be poured out. And that's exactly what we see in Revelation chapter 16. I, we won't read it for the sake of time, but uh, check it out yourselves. This is the final bowl judgment of God's wrath, which is where that wine that has just been made in that chapter is being poured out onto the earth. And you know what we read? You know what we read when we see those, those bowls poured out on the earth? We read... Essentially, the Exodus, again, we read the 10 plagues again. We read about how there's, um, that rivers and oceans get turned to blood. We read about how darkness comes on the land. We read about people getting boils. We read about people getting scorched with fire, etc. And you know what happens? No one, no, like... It just makes, just like Pharaoh, it makes people dig into their, their sin, dig into their evil. 
They just want to continue. And so you know what ends up happening as a result? Revelation chapter 19. We'll read this um, and then we'll, we're almost done. Two more things. And that is Revelation chapter 19. Let's look at verse 11 to 21. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. Who's this guy? I'll read it again. Uh, Before me was a white horse whose rider, rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. Who's this person? That's right. That's Jesus. Yeah. He's the heroic Jesus. So... With justice, he judges and wages war. Um, Verse 12, his eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. This is before the battle. By the way, what we're reading now is the the battle of Armageddon. This is the final battle, the battle to end all battles. Um, His robe is dipped in blood before the war even starts. Whose blood is it, is the question that should come to our mind. Is it his enemies that he's about to slaughter and whatever else? No, it's his blood. You see, the only one who can judge is the one who himself took on all the judgment and was found blameless, perfect and pure. The only one who can judge is the one who never deserved judgment in the first place and yet took it for our sake. And it is, that is why his, his robes are, are um, dipped in blood. Um, the armies of heaven were following him. Verse 15, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then uh, let's have a look. Later on in verse 19, I saw the beasts and the king, uh, the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. So you get this picture of Jesus and the host of heaven um, and they're standing up and Jesus is already covered in blood, the blood of his own sacrifice. And he is the only one who is worthy to judge out of his mouth, not in his hand, out of his mouth comes the sword and all the armies are before him and, and the, the, you know, the beast and all these other people who are bad. And what ends up happening? Is there a massive battle where Jesus is like, oh, and then he, you know, and then Satan and him are locked in this final tussle and he's like, oh, or anything like that? No. You know what happens? Check it out, but I'll summarize it for you. Uh, the beast is taken straight to fire, hell, and everyone else is wiped, wiped out. It actually, it just says that they're all destroyed. Now, one way is like, whoa, Jesus got really R-rated and like what happened to like this wonderful, loving Jesus? Guys, the sword is in his mouth. He's the one who can judge. He's the one who's covered in blood from the beginning of the battle. He does not have to kill anyone or destroy anyone in any way that you're thinking for judgment to be done. He is the one who has conquered death and he is the one who has has obtained and had God's wrath poured out on him and endured it, survived it, come out on the other side and gives it freely to us to be our source of protection, our shield and our righteousness before God. This Jesus, he looks in front of all these people that would choose to say to him, I fight you, I, I don't like you, I hate you. You know what happens? They just are destroyed. They cannot stand. They cannot stand. Um, I wrote it this way. I said, um, yeah, uh, the, the sword, the word of God, Jesus' actions cuts down any opposition and destroys anyone's claim for salvation who stand apart from him. In other words, you can't stand apart from him. There is no way you survive that. God's, God's righteousness and judgment, too much for you. And so therefore, the only hope you have is to stand behind Jesus, not in front of him. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the idea here is, and then we finally get this, this beautiful picture in Revelation 21 and 22 of, of the culmination of, of perfection and, and everything being made new. Um, before we read that, though, like the idea here is let's, let's recap. From the beginning of the Old Testament, um, from Genesis and the fall of mankind, all the way to what Jesus did on the cross and, and the future hope of what we see in, in, in 
the final days and the culmination of all of history is that God does not, God created a good world and anything apart and aside from God is rebellion and sin and evil. If you choose to stand against him, you will suffer consequences. There will be a downfall. Uh, and we see that in Adam and Eve in, in, the, in the Garden of Eden. There is also God hiding his face from you. And when that happens, the source of life, the source of order, everything devolves around you and creation and everything in your life will break apart as we see in the flood. Um, his judgments are to reveal your evil for the hope and the sake that you will turn back, as we see in uh, the, the bowl judgments, as we see in the ten, command, uh, the, the, the ten plagues against Egypt, etc. Are you going to dig in and be stubborn like a lot of these other people who will stand against Jesus, or like Pharaoh who himself was destroyed um, even though he had lost like ages and ages ago? And not only that, will you follow the one who... He, who didn't have to, who took on himself all of God's punishment, all of God's wrath, who drank deeply of that cup and who said, um, you know, now because of what I've done, I offer it to you. I offer it to you. So that's, that's the reality. It's really, it's as simple as God or you, your way or God's way. That's what it always comes down to. It's that choice, God's way or your way. And um, the, the promise and the hope is what we see in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 8. And we're going to end with this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So at the end of all things, I saw a new heaven, new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. That source of chaos and, and all that kind of stuff that was there at the beginning wasn't there anymore. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard with a, a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Evil, the consequences of evil, all gone. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Um, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for the murderer, sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, the liars... All those who would still choose to oppose, rebel, and choose their way instead of God's way, their portion, what they choose, what they choose, will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. If you can't choose life in this life, then you're choosing death, and you'll choose it forever. And life and death being here, either with God or apart from God. So, let's close our eyes and bow our heads. So some of us here have, um, have already chosen life. We know the author of life and um, we belong to him. Um, but you might be caught in a pattern of death. You might be caught in a cycle of death. It can't seem to beat that battle of sin um, uh, that, that's kind of raging within you. And God says that he gives you the victory. He already got it. He bought it for you on the cross. Some of us, though, might be here and we actually, we've heard this stuff a million times, or maybe this is the first time we're hearing it, and we realize that we have always been choosing death, and um, God here is saying to you that He wants to bless you. He wants to be a source of your good and not your destruction, and He actually wants for um, none to perish but all to have eternal life. And that he did everything he possibly could to provide that for you. And he's waiting. Waited 800 years for Israel. He'll wait your whole life for you. But time is running out. You do not have forever. You must make a decision. Um, and that's not to scare you. 
That's just to say, live in life. Live in relationship with the author of life. Live with the one who wants to bless you and who wants to do nothing but good things um, rather than the, 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 the evil and the sin that just drags you down and continues to separate you from him and separate you from all the, the good that God could do in and through your life. So, what's it going to be? And also, this story that we've been talking about these last couple, three weeks or so, um, this story is the story that should be on our lips to every single person that we see. Uh, you hold, if you believe this story, if you follow Jesus, you hold the keys, you hold the answer. Um, what are you doing with it? The harvest is ripe, as Jesus says. Lift up your eyes. Where, where are the servants that's going to go out and help pick the harvest? So, Lord, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for your love and for your desire to, um, to see that no one would be um, apart from you, Lord, that you've done everything to bring us in. I just pray, Lord, that you would help us respond in whatever way we need to um, and help us love you with everything that we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.